Welcome to Pocket Salon, I'm Jason Caffrey and for this edition Salon comes to you from the opulent setting of Banqueting House in central London. Once a favourite hangout of Henry VIII in 1649, this magnificent building became the scene of one of the most significant events in British history, the execution of Charles I. Five years after the King lost his head, right here, the man who had orchestrated his downfall took up residence in the building. That man was, of course, Oliver Cromwell. Those victories that we have won over the king, his armies, and those of his confederates would not have been permitted had it not been for divine providence. Yep, back from the dead, suited, booted, and in fine voice we'll be hearing more from Oliver later. We'll also be speaking to Salon founders Helen Bagnall and Juliet Russell about why they chose Banqueting House to present Salon. And Baroque music specialist Jane Cockroft will be giving us a 1649 hit list. But first, to help explore and understand the world of the mid-17th century, the times that Charles and Cromwell lived in and the forces that drove them both to destruction, Salon enlisted astrophysicist and science historian Stuart Clark and the curator of the historic Royal Palaces collection, Brett Dolman. This is the banqueting house, the banqueting hall, if you like, where people came for after-dinner celebrations, for court masks, um, for eating, for entertaining, but also for big ambassadorial receptions. It was a performance space, really, for the king in particular, King James I, for whom the building was built, to show off, um, to show himself off, to show the power of the king off to his population and to the visiting dignitaries from abroad. And above us is this pretty extraordinary Rubens painting, this painting was painted and put here in the 1630s, so after James I has died, by his son, Charles I. And it's a huge Baroque statement of the power of monarchy, about the divine right of kings. What it means is that it's a tour de force about monarchical authority. James I wrote a lot about how kings ruled, why it was important that people understood that they had to rule well, but they were accountable only to God. And this was something that got his son, Charles I, into an awful lot of trouble during the tempestuous decades of his reign in the 1630s and the 1640s. And ultimately, it was this Charles' stubborn belief, if you like, in the divine right of kings that led to his execution at this very location. He would have walked through this room underneath this beautiful testament to his power to his execution in 1649. So it's a very disrupted time socially and Stuart, you can tell us what's going on in the sciences at this point. Yes, the, the sciences were changing as well, and they had no concept of the term science and what it was to do science, but they, they, they studied nature in what they called natural philosophy. And for centuries before then, it had been dominated by Aristotelian and classical thought about everything in its rightful place. Movement was a product of things trying to find their rightful position in the universe. But now everything is changing. They're starting to believe in the power of transformation. And this is starting to undermine the assumption that the universe is set and in place because it's the best of the possible ways that it can be. So everything about how you study nature is starting to change. And the idea of experimentation 
is starting to really take hold, that you should investigate nature by contriving experiments. This is when the term laboratory comes into usage, or as it was called, the elaboratorium, where you elaborated nature. And all of this is starting to change the way we think about our place in the universe as well and how we relate to it. And we've heard from Brett how this long-held belief about divine right is being very seriously challenged by the king's execution. What are the things in science, what are the, the pillars, the given knowledge that people are having to start letting go of at the time? One very key one is the movement of the planets in the night sky. So when you look up into the stars, that's heaven, that is God's realm. And there were these wandering stars, the planets, that moved against the backdrop of the night sky. And the movement of those planets was thought to be completely beyond the understanding of the puny human mind. And yet, earlier in the century, a German mathematician called Johannes Kepler has succeeded in describing the movement of all the planets with just three lines of mathematics. It is the most astonishing achievement and it is rocking the very foundation of what you thought you knew. Brett, I want to bring you back in at this point. How is that change being reflected in what's happening in arts or architecture, for instance? Well, Baroque art itself becomes a battleground between where it starts, which is the Counter-Reformation Church, using these wonderful cycles of religious storytelling to try and be attractive, sensuous, viscerally interesting to its congregation. And yet the same art is seized upon by Protestant patrons across the reformed parts of Europe who want to use it to establish new forms of artistic authority, new ways of saying that they are in charge and that it's not the Catholic Church anymore. So what we're seeing is how some of the new thinking is directing politics, art, and they're playing off each other. When we think about the progress of science, often it's easy to assume that science would just take its own course, but is that actually the case? Could it have turned out differently? Could it have gone a different way? Yes, it's not the case at all that science is a logical stepwise progression. Modern science today is critically anchored at this period in time uh, with the philosopher Francis Bacon and he was of the opinion that you should experiment and believe just what your eyes can show you or what you can see. And this led famously to Newton's phrase uh, later in the century about I feign no hypotheses. I will not just sort of look at the world around me and come up with an idea of how I think it will be. I will only believe what I can prove in a laboratory. After 1649, Brett, and the execution of Charles I, an undertaking like this Rubens seems much harder to imagine being commissioned or undertaken. Is that the case? Well, certainly in the immediate aftermath after 1649, this sort of art goes away. You're you're living in a fairly Puritan environment where that this isn't really promoted. When Charles II comes back in 1660 you do get a return to some of the particularly flavourful artistic, baroque extravagant statements that were the case of the early 1600s Charles is particularly keen on importing French fashionable art, architecture, sculpture into the country. And there's other things going on here too. This is, this is a kind of a fashionable thing. It's also a political reaction against what many people thought was the failure of the Commonwealth. It's also a return of the vested interests, people that want to re-establish the kind of authority that they had before the Civil War. Baroque art 
cycles like this have their heyday in this country at the end of the 17th century, but not for very long. And you certainly don't get these unequivocal statements of royal power that Rubens has painted here. Well, it was Salon co-founders Helen Bagnall and Juliet Russell that brought everybody together in Banqueting House. And Juliet, I'm going to start with you. Well, it doesn't matter who I start with because <laughs> it's an amazing room, an amazing place. Whose idea was it to come here? We were really keen to do history, and as a Salon is art, science, psychology, history is a very difficult subject for us because there was no science um, before the 1700s. So we were able to work with historic royal palaces and find a way to really do um, history in a Salon way, which is do a Salon exactly as if it was 1649. And Helen, history, it, it really is a departure for Salon. Yes, it's very difficult for us to do. It's something that we both love. And so it was always finding the right angle to do it, which we're always looking for. I think for us, it's really important to be contemporary. And a lot of our stuff is about being cutting-edge things to our, our audiences, really. But I think with this, it's such, such a fantastic space. And another thing we're really keen to do is to bring spaces alive. So we move our salons around a lot. I mean, we do monthly ones in London at different venues. But here's probably the grandest venue. We've never done one beneath a Rubin ceiling before. So that's brilliant. That is exciting. And the other thing that uh, I noticed today, there's a lot of audience, people in the audience who are new to Salon. Yeah, we often get new people, actually, but I think it's also because it's in the historic royal palaces. They've also brought their own audience here. So it's quite of a mishmash. It's, um, yeah, we were just saying it's kind of maybe less rock and roll than normal, but I think it's also partly the grand space. So everyone's on their best behaviour. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll pass up on a bit of rock and roll as long as it's grand. That's yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely <laughs> fine. Helen, so it is a, a different setting for Salon, and that's something that I know that you like to do. You like to take people to different places. Yes, I really like to take people to pl different places outside of themselves. I think one of the great things about Salon is getting, is taking you out of yourself and by putting you in a totally different space that you're perhaps not comfortable in and then hitting you with classical music that you've perhaps never listened to before and subjects you've never thought of, you can't help but just have a, a different type of experience which Salon is always striving to give our audience. And I think, you know, it's also about relationships, and I think not just relationships with people, but relationships with spaces. And I think to bring a space like this alive, you could come here and appreciate the grandness of it, but to actually hear the stories behind the paintings, to actually know that the king was executed outside, to actually meet Oliver Cromwell and get right back and ask him those questions you'd really like to ask him. That's fantastic. And to me, it's already, when Stuart Clark was talking about history, it already brought that period. It's so alive for me, and what an exciting time for history. And, you know, this, those historic, those, some of those scientific ideas have shaped what we think about science now and that's fascinating we'll be talking to oliver cromwell a little bit later in this edition of pocket salon look tell us a little bit about what's coming up for salon uh, across the summer because i know maybe you're going back a little rock and roll you're taking salon to some festivals we are and i think we keep talking our summer break and it's far from because we're doing stand and calling festival which we did last year and was fantastic we've got two new festivals that we're doing um we're doing latitude which is really exciting and we're also doing number six festival which is in port marion in wales in september so we've got a really exciting summer lined up as well yeah we have and at stand and calling this year uh, which is second to fifth of august we're doing circus maximus so we're doing three days of salon content which is all about circus and for festival number six, as it's Port Merion, which is the home of um, the prisoner, we are working around the theme of identity. I am not a number. So we're doing a two-day salon in a Jacobean uh, grade two listed building. Well, it, it sounds like there's some fantastic coming up, things coming up 
for Santa. Oh, you wanted to put something else in, Helen? Go on. I have, um, but before we break up for summer, haha, we're doing a, a summer essential salon on the 11th of July at Foils. And uh, we will really, this is going to be a really rock and roll, really fun salon. And we're going to be giving you everything you need to have to have a really fun salon. We've got Katie Guest from The Independent on Sunday who will be telling you a uh, really fun summer. Katie Guest from The Independent will be telling you um, what to read, what to put on your device or actually physically buy to read this summer. We're doing super tasters, whether you've got exquisite taste um, from the Robin Collective. And also we have JP Flintoff on how to have meaningful conversations. Well, thank you both, uh, Helen and Juliet, for giving us your time. And you can find out more about details of those events, how to get tickets at www.salon-london.com. Well, the music that you can hear in the background here at Banqueting House has been curated by Jane Cockcroft. Jane is an expert in historical buildings and music, having worked with the Handel House Museum and Vivaldi's Women, amongst others. She explains how her music selection fit the space. Well, I started with thinking about what would have been played in this space, because I used to work at Handel House Museum, which is the home of a composer, and of course I'm used to thinking about music specific to a space. But what I found was there were references to the music that were performed during these great masks, which were such a huge part of the function of the space. But it's very hard to find recordings, so I had to start thinking about the themes of the space and how to convey those through music. I'll come back to the themes, but what, what is this thing, a mask? What is that? Ah, the masks are hugely important if you're going to think about 17th century music, theatre, drama, poetry. They are a kind of combination of poetry, music, dance, pure spectacle, amazing costumes, the royal family performed in them. It was all very much about the divine, the rule of the king, the wise king. So you had it divided into two parts, the anti-mask, which was you know, chaos ruling the land, and then the mask, which was when the king comes in and sorts it all out. Hurrah. So, OK, so that's the mask. And then back to your themes. What did you discover with themes? Well, I was on the basis of not being able to find specific examples of music from masks, I started to think about what the mask represented, and that, of course, is royal power. The royal power also equates to divine power, so I was looking for music, divine music, music of the court, courtly composers who also compose for masks, like William Laws and Nicholas Lanier. I was thinking about theatricality, so I was looking abroad to the amazing Italian opera composer Monteverdi. He was the person who really invented opera in the early 16th century. But he wrote a piece in um, 1743 called The Coronation of Popea, which seemed very appropriate because on the ceiling above us we've got James I being crowned. So you've got the divine, the theatricality, the courtly music, and the secular music, very much representing the establishment as it was before the Civil War broke out. I noticed that you found some rebel songs and some royalist songs. Yeah, this was much more about change and upheaval. So I started with a brilliant um, rebel song called The Digger Song by Gerald Winstanley, which is about the land rights. And I also found some very popular royalist songs that were probably sung on the field when the king enjoys his own again where men were dreaming of having the king back on the throne and the good days of when dancing was allowed and festivities and Christmas and then I looked at a kind of rather tragic love song really called Johnny Has Gone for a Soldier which is really that universal lament for, of loss which comes with every war. Jane Cockcroft and look out for a playlist of Jane's music selection on the Salon website. Well, we like to keep the best till last on Pocket Salon, and my final guest 
is a man that certainly fits that bill. I'm taking him out of Banqueting Hall, down the stairs, away from the Rubens ceilings, and into a ground floor chamber to speak to the man who defied divine right, took his parliament to war against his king, and brought about a revolution in England. I'm talking about none other than the arch-anti-royalist, the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, Oliver Cromwell. Oliver, thanks for joining us. You are most welcome, sir. Now, Oliver, you've got quite a mixed reputation, I think I'd say at best in English history, the man who killed the king. You could argue, sir, that the king was the architect of his own downfall. Parliament all the way along was quite willing to reach an accommodation with him to curb the king's power, to create a constitutional monarchy. But what he wanted to do was model himself after the kings of France. Absolute monarchs of all they surveyed, with the power of life and death over everyone in their kingdom. And that is something that we cannot suffer in this country. You're a very religious man, Oliver. Some would say a Puritan, some would say a little overzealous. How do you think about that? There's not wrong, sir, with being a Puritan, for why should we not wish to return to a pure sort of religion? And with this, there are those who would disagree, most especially the Papists, but they have taken the pure religion granted to us by the Lord and his son, Jesus Christ, and created a church where people are so distracted by the statuary and the, the candles and the stained glass that they contemplate those rather than the word of God. I mean, you take the celebration of Christmas, which we have just uh, done away with, there are those who will say that, oh, the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell and Fairfax and the, their ilk have cancelled Christmas, but that is not the case. We have certainly done away with the feasting and drunkenness, but how does feasting and drunkenness celebrate the birth of our Saviour, Jesus Christ? Well, hang on, Oliver. A celebration is about fun, isn't it? It sounds like you've done away with all of the fun bits of Christmas. A celebration, sir is the giving of thanks for the birth. How does becoming blind drunk or stuffing yourself with food so much that you can hardly move celebrate the birth of he who was born to save our souls? Now, I know that you're quite fond of um, the royal palaces. That's a bit of a surprise to me, Oliver, since you've uh, knocked off the king. Well, the palaces are objects of beauty. I mean, there would be no sense in knocking them down but they would be used, as far as I am concerned, for the people rather than the glory of one single man, Charles Stuart. A court is not just a building. It is the people within it. And Charles Stuart surrounded himself by those who were corrupt, selfish, godless, why should those palaces not be people with those who are godly and upright? I think many of our listeners, Oliver, have got an idea about your political career, your illustrious military career. I'm wondering about Oliver Cromwell, the family man. What do you like to do when you're not executing kings or suppressing rebellions in Ireland in your own spare time? I desire nothing better than to, to be in the bosom of my family with my, my sons and my daughters. For were we not placed upon this earth, uh, given uh, 
women to be our companions and to bear children to us. There can be no greater pleasure than to be surrounded by the bosom of your family. Oliver Cromwell, thanks very much for speaking to the Pocket Salon. You're most welcome, sir. God give you a good day. That's all from this edition of Pocket Salon. Thanks to all our guests, not least Chris Bailey from Past Pleasures, for breathing life into Oliver Cromwell. Until next time, cheerio.